I invite, you, I invite you to turn with me in Holy Scripture to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3. And our passage today is verses 20 through 35. Mark, chapter 3, verses 20 through 35. Open your hearts now with faith to receive the holy and the inspired word of the Lord. Speaking of Jesus, it says, Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he cast out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Brothers and sisters, this is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Blessed Lord, who has caused the Holy Scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may hear, read, learn, and inwardly digest them, that through the comfort of your Holy Word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, as we've already seen in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has already been about casting out demons. He's already been doing this. He has been calling forth unclean spirits from those who are being oppressed by them. But in this passage, he explains what it means that he's able to do this. We've seen him do it. Now he's going to explain why he's able to do this. Jesus is binding the strong man. And he's plundering the strong man's house. That's what he's doing. Satan in this passage is pictured like a mighty tyrant who has enslaved many people in his home. And now Jesus, that great champion of the Lord, that seed of the woman that God promised would come and eventually crush that of the serpent, that great champion has come. 
in Jesus Christ. And he has bound Satan and is setting the captives free. That's what Jesus is really up to in the gospel. But pretty much everyone has misunderstood him to one degree or to another, with one degree of severity or another. And uh, that's the big problem of this story, is that everybody's misunderstanding Jesus. And because they're misunderstanding Jesus, they're misunderstanding the work of God himself in the person of his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And identifying this problem as a problem of deep misunderstanding, identifying that helps us to understand our own struggles in the Christian life. Our own struggles with misunderstanding Jesus and recognizing misunderstandings going on even among unbelievers in this world. And what we learn is that misunderstanding the work of God leads to a failure to do the will of God. If you misunderstand who Jesus is, you cannot be a true disciple of him. How can you obey his word and do his will if you don't Get who he is and what he's actually doing and what he is accomplishing. But we're going to see all of this and hopefully come to a deeper understanding of it by focusing on two kinds of misunderstandings found in the passage. And hopefully that will correct some of our own misunderstandings about our Savior as well. First, there's the misunderstanding of his family. The misunderstanding of his family. If you've ever just felt misunderstood by friends or family, you are in good company. Because the Savior was also misunderstood. Now this passage gives us a a really good example. The first really good example of Mark doing what he will go on to do several other times in his short gospel. Which is to begin a story and then interrupt it and then return to the story again. Uh, Some call this sandwiching. It's like you have two pieces of bread on either side interrupted by all that good stuff in the middle. Mark does this. In literary form, he's writing in sandwiches because he wants us to hold together what we might otherwise be tempted to tear apart. And then we'd misread it and we wouldn't understand it properly. And here, the story of Jesus's family is the story that is interrupted. And uh, what he interrupts it with, what Mark interrupts it with, is this conflict with the scribes. And this is to show us that Mark is wanting us to hold it all together his family and the scribes, and contrast the two. Both groups of people, both his family and the scribes, are misunderstanding Jesus, and Mark, the gospel writer, would have us compare and contrast these two groups and their misunderstandings. Some members of Jesus' family have heard that he's now returned to Capernaum. If you remember last week, he was up on the mountain. We're not exactly sure where, but somewhere near Capernaum, and now he's back in town, and his family, presumably from Nazareth, which is somewhat nearby, have heard that he's returned, and they've heard that the wild crowds have returned with him. The, the crowds that we see throughout this gospel continue to get more out of control as, as they grow. And Jesus' family have, have heard that all this has returned again. Jesus has come back. The crowds have returned with him. It's still wild and a little dangerous what's going on with them. And for one reason or another, verse 21 tells us that they believe he has lost his mind. Later, on the other side of the sandwich, 
we see that he's teaching in a home. And this is probably still the house of Simon Peter and Andrew, the same house that we've seen him in a number of times in this gospel. And Jesus' own mother and brothers are said to be, in verse 32, seeking him. Seeking him. Um, Innocent enough of an action to do. But in the gospel of Mark, usually it's the opponents of Jesus who are seeking him. Over and over again, the scribes and the Pharisees are seeking to put him to death. Judas is seeking him to betray him later in this gospel. So this is probably a negative connotation. They're not seeking him to put him to death. But they're seeking him with some intention to have him withdraw from this wild scenario. They believe that Jesus' public ministry is evidence that he has become unhinged. They can see with their own eyes. Look at the crowds. This is clearly not healthy. And so for whatever reason, they have come now to seek him because they think he has lost his mind. But in reality, what Jesus is actually doing is the work of God. And they have badly misunderstood him. They see his divine work. They see responses to his divine work, distinctly divine work. And they conclude, he's he's gone mad. He's lost his mind. It's a misunderstanding. Notice how this misunderstanding about the work of God leads to a failure to do the will of God. If you don't recognize Jesus as doing the will of God, you cannot be his disciple. We see this exemplified in his family at this point. Jesus is calling on people to be his followers. Come after me, he says. Come in line. Come and listen and learn from me. And uh, like faithful disciples, he's calling on people, and we'll see him explicitly call on people later, to take up their cross. Following Jesus means self-denial and taking up one's own cross. And some are answering that call. As Jesus is teaching back at the house, we read in verse 32, that the crowd was sitting around him. They are sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening, learning from their master, this rabbi who's come down from heaven. And it is this crowd that Jesus identifies as the ones who are doing his will. They are my family, my actual biological mother and brothers. Those who do my will, those who are sitting about me here and and listening to me and learning from me and doing my will, they are my true family. Earlier in this chapter, verse 14 of chapter 3, one of the marks of the 12 disciples, in particular, those who will be called on to be apostles and to go and to plant churches and to speak authoritatively, One of the marks of those 12 disciples is that they are to be with him, with Jesus. That's true. It is literally true of the followers here in verse 32. They're with him. They're not outside the house like even Jesus' own family is. But they're sitting at his feet. They are with him. They have followed him. They are learning from him while his family stands outside. And so Jesus says and and declares not only to this crowd, but to us, the people of God today, that his true family members, those who belong to the household of God, those who, who belong to his church, 
are those who do his will, who truly follow, who hear his words and say, I will do that. I will follow you to the nth degree. I will follow you even if it means taking up my own cross. Brothers and sisters, this is the household of faith that you belong to. What is uh, pictured for us here in this humble house in Capernaum is an image of us for what it means to be a part of the family of God. The household of faith. That's a house that Jesus is currently populating with his followers. Even now, today. He is calling people out of darkness and bringing them into his household. The household of faith. There's another house in this passage, though. It's a house of darkness. It's the house of Satan. And Jesus, while he's populating his own household, he's plundering the household of Satan. And that takes us now to a second misunderstanding. We've seen this, his family misunderstand him. Now we see the scribes misunderstand him. <clears throat> Verses 22 through 30, we find... That story there in those verses that interrupts the story about his family. And here we meet up with the scribes again. We've seen them before. But there's a new and sinister development. In verse 22, we read that the scribes came down from Jerusalem. Now, they've, they've traveled north, but they've come down because Jerusalem is on a mountain. It's on a hill. So they've come down to go to Capernaum, and they have been sent there were scribes who were already there, but now these ones have come down from Jerusalem. They've come from the mothership. They've come as a delegation to go and investigate what's going on with this Jesus movement up in, that, up in the sticks, up in that province of Galilee. Go see what it, what it is and, and teach it down. Speak in opposition to it. But the problem is that they also have misunderstood Jesus. But in a far worse way, way than Jesus' family misunderstood him. His family is bad enough. His family was saying he's out of his mind. But look at verse 22. The scribes were saying he is possessed by Beelzebul. In verse 30, he has an unclean spirit. And the tense of this verb here in both of those verses, verse 22, verse 30, is that they were saying, meaning that this has become a habit for them. They did not come with an open mind to hear what Jesus actually had to say and what he was doing, but they came already with this conclusion. They were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Now, uh, what is this talk about Beelzebul? Uh, the title, Beelzebul, is clearly in this passage being used to talk about Satan. Uh, Jesus answers the accusation in verse 23 when he says, how can Satan cast out Satan? So he is, he's identifying Beelzebul as Satan. Uh, now, the title is a little mysterious, but it almost certainly comes from the name of the Philistine god in 2 Kings chapter 1, uh, Baal. But there, Baal is called Baal-zebub, which is basically Baal, the lord of the flies. Uh, or Baal itself is the lord, and Zebub would be the flies, the lord of the flies. Um, and since Baal was a false god, the title seems to have shifted over time as these things happen. When, when you go from one language to another, one culture to another, some of these names and titles can change a little bit. 
And so now it seems as though it has become a title to refer to the prince of demons, the devil himself. This is the core of the misunderstanding of the scribes. They say that the source of Jesus' power, even that undeniable power to cast out demons, comes from the devil. That the Son of God, the author of life, the only begotten Son of the Father, has come now to do the devil's work. Jesus responds to this truly outrageous accusation in two ways. First, his first response is in verses 23 through 27. He uses parables to ask a series of questions to point out how ridiculous it is that the scribes are saying this. And he just follows the logic. If he is casting out demons by the power of demons then that would mean that Satan is at war with himself. How can Satan cast out Satan? How are demons being cast out by the power and with the assistance of demons? Verse 25, Jesus says, If a house, there's the house, if the house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. Now, it is indeed true That Satan's kingdom and his house is coming to an end. That part's true. But it's not because Satan is at war with himself. That's not why his, his kingdom is toppling. That's not why his house is crumbling in on itself. Because civil war has broken out in the demonic realm. That's not what's going on. Satan's kingdom cannot stand because the true king has arrived. And it cannot withstand the utter glory of this king who has come now to proclaim his kingdom. Yes, it is true. The devil has a particular kind of power. He prowls like a roaring lion. He's the accuser of the brothers and the sisters. He has a certain power in this world. That's true. In verse 27, Jesus himself compares the devil to a strong man. He's strong. He does have power. And he compares him to one who is keeping his house shut tight and all of his goods are locked up. Nobody's getting in to take them. The only way to plunder the house of a strong man is to be stronger. And Jesus is the stronger one who has come. Satan's kingdom is not dividing because he's at war with himself. His kingdom is falling because the stronger man has come now to bind him. And plunder his goods. And shut the door on that house forever. That's what's actually happening. Brothers and sisters, that's what's actually happening in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has bound Satan so that he cannot be the deceiver of the nations any longer. Of course he tempts and he leads astray. There is that kind of power. It's not an absolute binding. But the gospel has now come. Christ the King has come to deliver us definitively from our sins. And in that sense, He has bound Satan. Jesus will say later to His disciples in chapter 6, I saw Satan fall like lightning. His kingdom is coming to an end. He's been bound. 
And every time Jesus casts out a demon, and for that matter, every time he proclaims this gospel, and every time he heals the sick and opens the eyes of the blind, he's plundering Satan's house. The devil's kingdom cannot withstand the arrival of Jesus Christ, because with Jesus comes the kingdom. What a glorious ministry this is in our Lord Jesus Christ. The most glorious thing that has ever happened on earth. All the prophets that came before and all the wonderful miracles that they performed in God's name and by the power of this same Holy Spirit, they pale in comparison comparison to the glory of this ministry. The Son of God has come and by the power of the invincible Holy Spirit, He is now liberating his people. And the scribes look at this glory and they say, that's the devil's work. They see the work of the Holy Spirit with their own eyes. And they say he's possessed by Beelzebul. And so Jesus responds in a second way, verses 28 and 29, more directly now, calling their accusation An unforgivable blasphemy. This will not be forgiven. Certainly such a tremendous and wicked misunderstanding about the work of God keeps them far from doing the will of God. Another great moment of irony, tragic irony in the gospel, is that those who are accusing Jesus of doing the work of the devil are themselves doing his work. And so they cannot do the will of Jesus. They're doing the will of their own father, the devil himself. They are not sitting at the feet of the Savior. They do not obey his voice. They accuse the Son of the Most High God of doing the work of Satan himself. We have these two misunderstandings, brothers and sisters. There's the misunderstanding of his family, And there's this profound, satanic misunderstanding exemplified in the scribe. And that leads us, finally this morning, to help us to understand our own misunderstandings. We're not just weak and finite people. We are that. But we are also constantly having to fight against the twistedness of our own hearts. When we think about the Savior, we come with misunderstandings. And those misunderstandings will affect our walk in discipleship. It will affect how we do the will of God as his followers. From these two groups, uh, the family of Jesus and the scribes, we see arise from the passage two categories of misunderstandings. We have the accidental and the willful. The accidental and the willful. Now, we don't know exactly why Jesus' family got it so wrong at this point in Jesus' ministry. But we know that it was not the end for them. Jesus' mother is the Blessed Virgin Mary. And she understood the promises of God that were proclaimed to her when the angel Gabriel came. This son shall be the one who saves his people from his sins. And so I I think it's safe to assume here that uh, Mary, perhaps motivated by uh, worry or fear for her son, 
uh, in that he is drawing up this kind of wild movement, is uh, misunderstanding her son in maybe the most innocent way. Because we see evidence of her in other passages, even before this passage in the other Gospels. We see signs of belief in Mary. Uh, So it's not the end for her. She will eventually bow at the feet of her own beloved son and uh, proclaim him as Lord. She'll follow him all the way to the cross. She'll be there. We also know that at least two of his brothers, James and Jude, not only believed, but became pastors and wrote books of the Bible. It wasn't the end for them either. Their misunderstanding did not lead to their perishing. And so you see his, his family did not willfully misunderstand him, but accidentally misunderstood him. Uh, if there's any will involved, it's because they've, mis- they've misappropriated what they've heard about him. They've misunderstood the reports about him. Or they've seen something that he's done, and it's been so brand new to their eyes that they didn't have the right categories to understand it. Whatever the case, they accidentally misunderstood. They just didn't get it yet. Many unbelievers in this world are currently in opposition to Christ. Because they've been told lies about Jesus. And so they're basing their unbelief on a misunderstanding. It's a dime a dozen, isn't it? Jesus might be a good moral teacher. Seemed to be a good guy, but he's no different than all the other great gurus of of the, the ancient mystery religions. That's one way people misunderstand him. Other hear him spoken about as a misogynist and... Even today, it is true, as a racist. That's what some people say about Jesus. Um, These are profound misunderstandings about Jesus. And uh, in some cases, it's willful, but in many cases, people have been very poorly taught. They've been taught the scriptures in a way that does not hold together. They break apart what Jesus says to hold together. And so they're coming to the uh, testimony about Jesus Christ with misunderstandings and suspicions because they've been taught wrongly. Which is why it is so important that our doctrine be purified by the word of God so that we are not teaching untruths to people and then people persist in unbelief. Perhaps you uh, yourself sometimes find yourself a little confused about Jesus. We confess a lot about him. We confess he is both a truly divine and truly man. Yes, truly a human nature and a divine nature. That can be hard to grasp. And if we have an imbalance on that or any number of other doctrines concerning Christ, that misunderstanding will affect what our walk looks like and how we do the will of God. Perhaps you're confused about what Jesus is up to in the world today. You don't understand what his return will be like. That'll affect how your discipleship looks in this life. But in many cases, of course, we're we're talking here about the accidental misunderstandings. Uh, Many people come to the word of God with the best of intentions. They they believe on Christ, but they don't know how to read their Bibles. They've been poorly taught, and so they have misunderstandings. There's always hope for unbelievers and for immature or maturing believers alike if we come with those kinds of misunderstandings. Even his own family had profound misunderstandings about him. And there was hope for them. There's hope for us as well and for those unbelievers in your life that have misunderstood Jesus and are persisting in unbelief. Pray for them. 
Pray for them. There is hope even for them. But there are also willful misunderstandings. Some people know better. Many people know better. They understand what Jesus claimed about his person and his work. They understand, they've been taught clearly what Jesus accomplished and that he is King and Lord, not only to be believed, but to be obeyed. It's just that they they don't like it. They know and they don't like it. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness, as Paul says in Romans 1. They just don't like it. Brothers and sisters, to a certain extent, there's hope even for those who are willfully misunderstanding Jesus. If this describes you, there's some doctrine that you are struggling with. You, you do understand it, but you don't want to believe it for whatever reason. Embrace it. Embrace Christ fully. Embrace all of his teachings fully. And you will find whatever this teaching is, no matter how much it presses up against your sensibilities, it will indeed be Wonderful in the end for you to embrace. So embrace him fully and follow him fully and don't suppress what you know to be true. But what we see in the scribes is a willful misunderstanding to the extreme degree. To the extreme degree. It does not get any worse than this. In coming to Jesus, seeing his work, recognizing what he teaches, and still not only rejecting him, but imputing to him and and crediting to him the work of Satan. That is an extreme, willful misunderstanding and rejection. And Jesus shows that this attitude of the scribes, their behavior and what they're saying about him, is an outward sign that they have blasphemed the Spirit of God. Now, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, that eternal sin... This is something that can make a trim, uh, 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 tender consciences tremble. But let's recognize a couple of things uh, before we close here about this particular sin. Notice, again, that it is the extreme willful misunderstanding that leads to this sin. Or that constitutes this sin. We're not talking about an incantation here. It's not just that they said he's got an unclean spirit. It's that their hearts were totally misaligned in opposition to the Lord of glory. And they called the light darkness. And they called the power of the Holy Spirit the work of the devil. And they did this knowingly. You don't just fall into this sin. So brothers and sisters, I I plead with you not to tremble when you hear this warning from Jesus. Your tender conscience should be assuaged. Christ is a compassionate Savior. It is one thing to struggle with sin in the Christian life. It is one thing to struggle with misunderstandings about Jesus. Christ is merciful towards us. If we sit at his feet, he will teach us. It is one thing to do those kinds of misunderstandings. It is another thing altogether to do what the scribes are doing in this passage. And to say that the work of the Holy Spirit, who is blessed forever, is actually none other than the devil himself. Our own canons of Dort, what we confess together as the churches of this federation, uh, it says, We reject the teachings of those who teach that those who truly believe and have been born again can commit the sin that leads to death, which is the sin against the Holy Spirit. So your own confessions ought to help you in this. If we are truly believed, and so you must ask yourself, do you believe in Christ? 
Not how, how, what is the strength of your faith? Not how strongly are you believing on Christ, but do you believe? Do you believe that his blood washes away your sins? Do you believe that his righteousness has been offered to you freely in the gospel? If you believe this, then no matter how weak that faith may be, you can have assurance that this is not a sin that you will ever commit. It is for those who are in extreme opposition to the Lord Jesus Christ and by their actions show it to be the case. So come now and reject all manner of misunderstandings about Jesus Christ. Come and do the will of God, which is to follow Christ. To receive his teachings is very sweet to the soul, no matter what that teaching happens to be. Sit at his feet. Listen to the teacher. And you will find in him a savior for your soul. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty and most merciful Father, we ask now that you would write this word on our hearts. Plant the seed of your word deeply in the soil of our hearts and water it by the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask and pray all these things through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who with you and the Holy Spirit are forever blessed. Amen.